Well, we are continuing with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are looking specifically at Acts 24, verses 1 to 21. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is answering charges from the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, standing before Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. And of course, to understand how he got to this point, we have to review a little bit to get us into the, to, to help us to see what has, has led up to this and understand the context of, of what's taking place. It goes back to uh, whenever the, at the very end of Paul's third missionary journey, the Holy Spirit uh, compelled him that he needed to return to Jerusalem. Well, on the trip back to Jerusalem, uh, we see in Acts 21 that Paul was able to visit with believers in various cities along the way. They had prophetic words for him that they shared with him. And these prophetic words spoke of the great trials and afflictions that awaited Paul in Jerusalem. Well, the believers then would plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul appreciated very much their concern, but he was convinced the Lord was leading him to return. And these prophecies were a help to to prepare him for what was going to happen, not to keep him from going. Well, the believers relented and stated that their confidence in the Lord was that his will would be done. Uh, It wasn't what they preferred, but they trusted the matter to the Lord. Paul made it clear that no matter what happened, his purpose was going to be to honor the name of the Lord. Well, when he got to Jerusalem, he met with the elders of the church. They talked about uh, some good things that were happening. Many Jews were putting their faith putting their faith in Christ, but also they were faced with the fact that um, that since the temple was still standing, they were continuing to practice the ceremonial laws like offering sacrifices, feasts, purification rites, and so forth. They understood as as believers now that those ceremonial laws were all pointing to the to the coming of the Messiah and were therefore fulfilled in Christ, but they continued to observe them. Well, these believing Jews were concerned because they were being told from somewhere that Paul was telling Jews in the Roman Empire that he was interacting with that they should no longer observe those laws, and that's not what he was doing. Well, to help address this concern, Paul participated in a purification rite in the temple, along with four men from the Jerusalem church. While he was in the temple, there were some unbelieving Jews from Asia who recognized Paul. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, like Paul was, and uh, Paul had been very effective in sharing the gospel in the province of Asia, especially uh, in Ephesus. So he was well-known and was easily recognized by them. Well, they accused Paul of speaking against the Jewish people, of speaking against the law, of speaking against the temple. And they succeeded in starting a riot with the intention of killing Paul. Well, the Roman commander saw what was happening, and with the help of 200 soldiers, he intervened. And while they were beating Paul, he rescued him. Paul asked for permission to speak to the people who had just tried to kill him. So in Acts 22, we see what he shared with them. He spoke of his conversion in the faith, uh, as far as as far as uh, as far as believing that Jesus was the Christ, and as he spoke to them, he made it clear that all of this happened in the context of his Jewishness. He spoke in Hebrew, the Jewish language. He talked of how he was born Jewish. He talked about how he was educated in Jerusalem under the great teacher Gamaliel. 
He was zealous for the Lord. He was convinced that those who believed Jesus was the Christ, he was convinced they were completely wrong. So he actively persecuted them. And of course, in the process of doing this, with the full support of the Jewish ruling council, Jesus appeared to him on his, on his way to Damascus. Paul then put his faith in Jesus as the Christ, and he was then led to meet with a Jewish Christian in Damascus named Ananias. And Jesus used this Jewish Christian to confirm to Paul that he had been called as an apostle of Christ. And then Paul spoke of a time that happened three years later when Jesus, and this was in Jerusalem, when he was in the temple worshiping, Jesus appeared to him again and told him very specifically it was time to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Well, when the Jews heard this, these Jews who had been rioting against him, they began to threaten him once again. Roman commander had to pull him out once more. He could not figure out what the problem was, why they were so upset. He intended to have Paul scourged, tortured, until Paul told him that he was a Roman citizen, and that made that an illegal thing to do. So the commander then called together the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to meet with Paul. So the next day, we see in Acts 23 then that Paul met before them, and he told them that he served the Lord with a clear conscience. When he said that, immediately the high priest had him struck on the mouth. Paul then prophesied that the Lord would strike him, that high priest, down for his sinful hypocrisy, and we know that that ultimately did happen. Paul also told the Sanhedrin that he was on trial for his belief in the resurrection. Well, this caused an uproar within them because it was made up of two groups known as Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees agreed with, with, with Paul about the resurrection idea, but the Sadducees disagreed, and so there was a great heated argument. Once again, the Roman commander had to rescue Paul as things were becoming dangerous for him. Well, that night, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared personally to Paul again and encouraged him. He had been courageous in giving his testimony, and he would need to continue to be courageous because the Lord promised that he was going to have the opportunity to testify in Rome as well. Well, as we saw last week, the very next morning after that meeting with the Sanhedrin and after that time that Christ came to Paul personally, over 40 Jews conspired together to kill Paul. They convinced the Sanhedrin to join them in this wicked plan. They were supposed to tell the Roman commander that they wanted to question Paul more thoroughly, and as, they were, as, as the commander was bring, would have him brought to the Sanhedrin, their intention was to kill Paul before he ever got there. But again, the Lord providentially intervened to nullify this plan to shed innocent blood. He calls Paul's nephew to be in the right place at just the right time to overhear the details of this plan from the, what the 40s were, 40 men were making and the plan and the coordination with the Sanhedrin. He understood. He knew all was going on. So he was able to enter the Roman barracks where Paul was being held and told him about this conspiracy. Ultimately, he was allowed to actually go and meet personally with the Roman commander and the Roman commander believed him, and he ordered 470 soldiers in all to escort Paul to Caesarea through the night, 70 miles away, so that he would be safe. And it was in Caesarea that Paul would stand before Felix, and again the Jewish ruling council could make their case against Paul before Felix. 
Well, that brings us now then to Acts 24 and explains to us why Paul was where he was. So let's look at Acts 24, verses 1 through 21. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, <coughs> Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were true. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. First thing that we need to note about this passage is the number one point on your first point on your outline, and that is this. Paul stood before Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, to be accused by the Jewish leadership and to state his defense against their charges. That's really a summary of what's happening in these verses. The Sanhedrin are represented by an, attor an attorney named Tertullus. He begins with some very lavish flattery for Felix before addressing the charges against Paul. This kind of thing was really kind of a basically a standard procedure in addressing a person in authority, but there seems to be some extra embellishment by Tertullus, especially in light of the kind of man that Felix was. Tell you a few things about him. He governed as the procurator, that was his official title, of Judea from AD 52 to 59. He's actually coming near the end of that reign then. During his tenure, there was increasing unrest in the province 
between the Jews and the Roman government. He dealt with problems in ruthless ways. He was notoriously corrupt as a public official. His private life was characterized by others as being cruel and lustful. Generally speaking, Felix is considered to be more responsible than any of the other governors for the problems that actually led up to the Jewish war that began in 67 and went through 73. So Felix was not a good man in any sense of the word. The accusations brought against Paul were, were that he was a pest who stirred up dissension among the Jews all over the Roman Empire. He was charged with being a ringleader in the sect, as they called it, of the Nazarenes, and he was charged with trying to desecrate the temple. By the way, from verses 6b, your, your, your versions probably point this out, from verses, verse 6b through 8a, there is a comment there about the fact that they were not happy with what the Roman commander had done. Those phrases are not in the earliest and best manuscripts, so it's likely that that was really not part of what Luke originally wrote. Well, after Tertullus completes these charges, Felix then gives Paul a chance to defend himself. He acknowledges Felix as the judge of their nation, but does not go into all the excessive flattery that Tertullus does. He makes it clear that he went to the temple to worship, and while there, he did absolutely nothing that would cause a riot. In fact, it was the Jews from Asia who caused the uproar, and he says they're the ones who should be here making an accusation if they have one, uh, but of course they're not there. Paul does agree with the charges of being part of the sect of the Nazarenes, often called the Way, and he speaks in some detail about that, which we're going to go into in a moment. But the main thing I want to notice here first <coughs> is just the contrast between how Paul was treated by the Sanhedrin and how he's treated in this Roman court. J.A. Alexander in his commentary on Acts says this. He says, there is a striking contrast, a striking contrast here between the order and fairness of this Roman process though conducted by a wicked man, and the passionate confusion of the Sanhedrin, although composed of priests, scribes, and elders of the Jewish people. It's interesting to note, as you think about it, about how much attention Luke has given to this whole situation, beginning with Paul traveling to Jerusalem up to this hearing before Felix. Paul mentions 12 days in verse 11. We don't know exactly where he's starting the count of those days, but the point is that these things had all happened in the recent days. <clears throat> and we find Luke giving us almost a day-by-day -day account of what was taking place. So this was a key event, key issues that Luke was, is really trying to give us a lot of detail on. Several things that these verses have, have illustrated and continue to illustrate for us, they highlight the issue of what Jewish believers were dealing with as they were continuing to observe the ceremonial laws. That's one of the things that coming, coming, has come up here. They highlight the unbelieving Jews and their hostile opposition to those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they seem to especially highlight the unbelief of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. I mean, these men were truly full of unbelief, and they were very hypocritical. Uh, 
Paul had called them whitewashed walls, which was exactly accurate. They claim to stand up for the Old Testament law, but that was only in a surface way. They were very hypocritical, unbelieving men. Well, that is what makes this hearing before Felix stand out as a contrast to Paul's hearing uh, before the Sanhedrin. As we noted, Felix the governor is truly or was truly a wicked man. History makes that clear. But this wicked man gave Paul a chance to fully defend himself without threats or without interrupting him. The Sanhedrin is made up of the religious leaders of the day. Their behavior toward Paul when he stood before them was atrocious. Not to mention that they also were the ones who had sinfully and hypocritically agreed to help these conspirators who planned to murder Paul. They were in on that too. Well, Luke is making it very clear how deeply committed the Jewish leadership is in their unbelief. We know that among the Jews, there were many who were putting their faith in Jesus as the Christ. But that was not true of these people. That was not true of these priests, scribes, elders, and so forth who made up the Sanhedrin. This is setting everything up for what, for what would, as I mentioned, was the Jewish war uh, beginning uh, officially around 67. And the temple ultimately would be destroyed and Jerusalem itself would be destroyed in 70 A.D. Jesus prophesied this would take place and this was a judgment on the Jewish people because of their unbelief. And so Luke is really kind of making this very clear so we can kind of see here's where, they, here's where they were and this is why things got as bad as they were and the Lord actually sent judgment on them through the Roman armies in, in the years to come. This is all preparatory to that. So let's now look at our second point as part of his defense. We see that Paul made it very clear that in, in embracing the way he was serving and worshiping the God of Old Testament Judaism. Paul was clearly a Christian man. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul also fully embraced his Jewishness. That is something he continued to emphasize, whether it was speaking to the Jewish mob at the temple in the temple area, or speaking to the Sanhedrin, or here in defending himself before Governor Felix. Many of the Jews were convinced that if they were to accept Jesus as the Christ, they would have to give up being Jews. And tragically, that continues to be a major stumbling block among Jewish people in our day. Paul makes it clear that that is not true. They do not have to stop being Jews in order to be Christian. And Paul makes it clear, I'm both. First, we see this. As a Christian who was Jewish, Paul traveled to Jerusalem to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 11, Paul tells Felix that he went to Jerusalem to worship. Now, of course, true worship can happen anywhere. It's not necessary to be in a temple, a church building, uh, to worship the Lord. Paul himself makes that clear, like in, in Romans chapter 12. He talked about present, uh, just uh, exhorts us to present our bodies to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God and then he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. So as Christians, every aspect of our lives is to be lived as an act of worship. We live as people who seek to honor the Lord in all that we do. 
Therefore, Paul himself made it clear that true, genuine worship can happen anywhere. But here he says that he came to Jerusalem with the purpose of worship. He came with the intention of using the temple in an appropriate way as a faithful Jew to worship the God of their fathers. He did not come to desecrate the temple. He came to worship the Lord in the temple. It was the elders of the Jerusalem church who suggested he participate in that purification rite in the temple. Paul readily agreed to do this because it was perfectly in line with one of his main reasons, one of his main purposes in coming to Jerusalem anyway. He used that time in a purification rite as a genuine act of worship and honoring the Lord, not just going through the motions of a religious ritual to kind of try to appease people who might be watching. But down in verse 17 and 18, Paul makes further reference to this. He says, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. So Paul says it had been several years then that since he had been to Jerusalem. Of course, he had been occupied uh, with taking the gospel to various parts of the Roman Empire. And it probably been uh, anywhere from three to five years since he had been to Jerusalem. He says in verse 17, he came to bring alms to his nation and to present offerings. Well, we know really that Paul from Paul's letter to the Romans and his letters, uh, two letters to the Corinthian church, that Paul had led the Gentile Christians to take up an offering for the poor members of the church in Jerusalem. And we also know that there were several members of some of those churches who accompanied him on his return trip to Jerusalem. And again, this was done to show practical and tangible support to Jewish believers. So this giving of alms was a further aspect of Paul's worship of the one true God, a worship that took place in conjunction with his time in the temple. Giving of tithes and offerings is an act of worship because Paul, I think, ties that into what he's doing here as far as worshiping. Well, Paul denied the charges of being a pest, of being a troublemaker, but he did not deny the charges of one who had faith in Jesus, the Nazarene. He fully embraced that charge, the sacrifice for sinners on the cross. So in other words, Paul believed the Mosaic law. He believed it. Secondly, we also see that as a Christian who was Jewish, Paul believed all that was written in the prophets. He believed all that was written in the prophets. Moses was a prophet, for example. He prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like him would arise from among his Jewish countrymen. So Moses was prophesied the Messiah would be a man, specifically a Jewish man, who would be a mediator between, the, between God and the people like Moses was. That was a prophecy. The prophet Nathan spoke to King David in 2 Samuel 7 about the fact that one of David's descendants would reign on his throne forever. Well, this was a prophecy that the Messiah would be a king in the line of David. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. He said, Lord, would cause the iniquities of us all to fall on him. He said he would be like a lamb that was led to slaughter, consistent with those Old Testament uh, sacrifices. He said that he would be smitten of God, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed 
for our iniquities. So the Messiah would suffer as a perfect substitute for the sins of others. And then David spoke as a prophet in Psalm 16, verse 10, when he said the Lord would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. So that speaks of the fact that even though the Messiah would die, he would not stay dead. His body would not decay. He would rise from the dead. Paul believed all those things that the Jewish prophets spoke about, wrote about. He understood by faith that all these prophecies were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see that as a Christian who was Jewish, Paul believed there would certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked and lived his life in light of the judgment to come. So after saying, Paul says, in accordance with my adherence to the way, I believe everything about the Mosaic law. I believe everything that's written in the prophets. And then he has one more thing. In verse 15, he says that his hope that there would be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked was consistent with what the Jewish forefathers believed. This was not something new and different. We know that in Paul's previous meeting before the Sanhedrin, it was clear that the group known as the Sadducees, as I mentioned earlier, did not believe in a resurrection. Well, Paul obviously did not consider that belief to be consistent with the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's not. And so he basically ignores them, even though they were probably right there sitting in the room, when he says that he cherished the same hope of the resurrection as these other members of the Sanhedrin did. He was leaning on the, the Pharisee members of the Sanhedrin at that point because he felt like they were, they were right in this, in this area. Well, a scripture that he most certainly had in mind here is Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. A very clear scripture about, about judgment day and the resurrection that will take place. It says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That is speaking of the day of judgment when the final resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked will take place. It talks about two different groups there. The many who sleep in the dust and awake to everlasting life, that's the righteous. But they are the ones who have put their faith in the Messiah and trust him for their salvation. The others that Daniel speaks of awake to disgrace and everlasting contempt. These are the wicked. They are the ones who reject the Messiah and stand before the Lord based on their own works. And as a result, they are judged accordingly. This is a biblical and Jewish belief of the final resurrection in connection with the final judgment. Jesus spoke of the same thing very clearly in John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The good deeds spoken of here are evidence of the new life in Christ. The evil deeds are evidence of one who rejected Christ. So Paul, as a Jewish Christian man, 
believed in the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And because he knew that this judgment was a reality for all people, he knew it was a reality for himself. He says he sought to live his life in such a way that he would be ready. He says he pursued a blameless conscience in his relationship to God and his relationships with people. He wanted to live a life that would be pleasing to God in every way. And Christ had so changed his heart that that's what he was compelled to do. And one of the things that was a great help to him in this was his knowledge that he would one day stand before the Lord to give an account of his life. This is really what every man, woman, and child needs to do. We are all going to stand before God to give an account of our lives as well. We are all going to do that. The reminder of that can be something the Holy Spirit uses to help us flee from temptation, to help keep our relationship with other people right. Paul said that's the way it was used in his life. So all these things that Paul believed and acted on, not, not just because he was a Christian, but also consistent with the fact that he was Jewish, makes it clear that, especially to those who are Jewish, that you don't, they don't have to stop being Jewish to become a Christian. There is a definite connection, a oneness between the Old and New Testament and, the, uh, and all the, the truths that are there. Okay, the last thing we need to look at this morning is this. We need to look a little more closely at the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul brings it up again at the end of his defense. He tells Felix in verse 21 that he, that, uh, that he spoke of, of, of this particular sentence that he spoke when he appeared before the Jewish council. He says, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. So in his short defense before Felix, he brings up the resurrection twice. Obviously, he's he, speaking of that as being an important event. So our final point today, we see this. Paul understands the importance of the resurrection if there was to be any true hope in life and death, any true hope. Now, again, Paul especially focused on the belief, the shared belief in the final resurrection that was the, the same that the Jews who believed the Hebrew Scriptures had. But we also know that Paul's belief in the hope of the resurrection went beyond what the Jews believed. It was a belief that was centered on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There's two things I want to point out about this resurrection hope. The first one is this. It is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that confirmed he was the Messiah and fully accomplished salvation for all who would believe in him. So as we noted earlier, there were prophecies about the Messiah that indicated that he would die, but also that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus told his disciples multiple times that he would not only be crucified, just like the prophet said, but he would also be raised again from the dead, again, just like the prophet said. Let me give you one example. This is Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Again, you can find that several times where Jesus told them the same basic thing. Well, the disciples did not fully understand these things, although Jesus spoke of them very plainly. When Jesus was crucified, they really were not expecting a resurrection. But when they went to his tomb 
and saw that he had, in fact, been raised from the dead, there was gladness. There was joy. There was also, it talks about fear and trembling kind of thing. There was an awe here of what is this, what has just taken place here? Well, Jesus' resurrection confirmed a number of things. First, it confirmed the fact that he was the Messiah just like he said he was. I mean, it confirmed that. It made that for sure. But it also means that everything he came to accomplish in providing salvation for those who believe really was accomplished. And the resurrection, again, confirms that. For example, let me just divide it up into three different things. First, this means that God the Father fully accepted the payment for our sins that Jesus made on the cross. If, G if, if, if the payment had not been sufficient, the Father would not have raised him from the dead. Being raised from the dead was a confirmation that Jesus fully did pay for the sins of sinners. It's finished. That's why he said that. It's finished. It's done. The resurrection is a confirmation of that. Second, the resurrection means that the righteousness that Christ earned for all who would believe was also fully completed. The scripture says he was raised for our justification. Our justification speaks of the righteousness we have before God based by faith. And it's based on faith because Christ earned that righteousness for us, a perfect righteousness according to the law of God. Perfect righteousness. Again, <coughs> if Jesus had not perfectly earned that righteousness, the Father would not have raised him from the dead as if he had. So the, re so the resurrection confirms not only that our sins are forgiven, but also that confirms that we stand fully righteous before God in Christ through faith in Christ. And then thirdly, his resurrection guarantees that our Lord and Savior will never leave us or forsake us. He's alive. Our Redeemer lives. He is always with us. He is continually praying for us as the resurrected and reigning Savior King. That's just some really some glorious truths, all connected with the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. And there's another, a second thing I want to point out that, about that is this. It is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that guarantees the glorification of every believer with bodies that are incorruptible, spiritual, and immortal after the likeness of Christ. Paul writes a lot about this in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, he describes Christ as being the first fruits of those who have died. In a harvest, the first fruits are, of course, the first thing that's harvested, the first thing that's come ripe. But the first fruits are also a guarantee that there's more harvest to come. That's why it's the first. Everything else is to come after that. Well, Christ was the first fruits. We're the harvest. The first fruit guarantees the harvest is coming in as well. All Christians are in Christ. We are described as being in Christ in his death. We are described as being in Christ in his burial. We are described as being in Christ when he rose from the dead. Our baptism symbolizes those three things, buried with Christ, or dead with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. So in every aspect of our life and death as Christians, we are in Christ. 
So as the first fruits of those who have died, Christ is the guarantee for a full harvest of souls. His resurrection guarantees that we will be raised to new life in Him. This is also a guarantee that our salvation will be completed in Him. We talk about salvation, and this is right to say this, but He saves our soul. So, there, so there's definitely a transformation, a salvation of soul that is a part, that is what salvation is. But salvation actually is meant to transform our bodies as well, not just our soul, but the whole man, the whole person. Well, that transformation of body takes place on resurrection day when Christ returns. At that point, our bodies will be raised from the dead, unless we're still alive when Christ returns. But for the, most of us will probably have died when that takes place. And uh, all who have died, of course, in history past, on that day, all will be raised from the, from the grave. Their bodies will be reunited with their souls on that day and completely transformed and glorified for all eternity. We will all be conformed to the likeness of Christ's glory on that day. All Christians, all Christians will be fully and completely glorified again in Christ because he's the first fruit of the harvest. Just a few things, a few words here about our glorified body. Our glorified body will be incorruptible. That's the idea. I mean, we know this. Our earthly bodies are always changing. Um, and especially once you get past a certain age, it's usually not changing for the better. <laughs> I mean, little by little, things deteriorate. Things decay. Things begin to not work like they used to work. We, um, I mean, that's just, that's the way it is. I mean, there's, we get sick. We sometimes are injured in various ways. That's a reality. Our glorified bodies will be incorruptible. There will be absolutely no deterioration, no decay of any sort. Our bodies are incorruptible. Your body right now is not that way, but it will be because Christ is the first fruits. He guarantees it. Our glorified body will be spiritual. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is sown, he's got the same uh, 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 agricultural kind of uh, imagery here, sown as a natural body, but raised as a spiritual body. doesn't mean you can't see us. We think of spiritual as being a ghost, but that's not what we're talking about. But it's spiritual, because it's all, but it's also physical. It is a spiritual body, and it's a spiritual body that will never get tired, that will always fully function, but also it's a body that is especially conformed, again, to Christ and guarantees a full spiritual enjoyment of God to all eternity. Our body can... If we were, if we were actually brought in the full glory of God right now. Even if you prayed a lot this morning, even if you've memorized verses and sang all the songs and really meant them, if we were brought in the, full, in the full presence of God's full glory right now, we would all be destroyed. We could not endure that. But that's not true when it comes to our spiritual body. It's a spiritual body. We are enabled to be in the full and glorious presence of God 
to eternity. And there is delight and enjoyment like we cannot even imagine in this, in this world. Our glorified body will also be immortal. Again, Paul uses that word as well. He says, what is mortal must put on immortality. It will never be corrupted. Of course, there won't be any death, but it will never be corrupted in any way, whether it's a moral corruption, a physical corruption, a deterioration, be fully like Christ in soul and body, all because of what our Savior did when he paid the price for our sin and then was raised to new life. So it's in our crucified and resurrected Savior that our salvation is completely and fully accomplished. And the resurrection is the key to all of that. Paul said, again in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ was not raised, then we're still in our sins and our faith is worthless. It's just worthless if Christ was not raised. But the fact is, he has been raised. And that's what gives us that amazing resurrection hope. Well, Paul was testifying to this before Felix and in front of the Sanhedrin, and he was making it clear, that, again, that he was a fully Jewish man who was a committed Christian. His hope was Christ, and that's what our hope is as well. Lord, we want to thank you again for your word. I thank you for what you reveal to us in the scriptures. I thank you for the example of someone like Paul who stood so firmly for his faith, even though he was constantly badgered and beaten and ridiculed and uh, just, just on and on and on. And he continued to stand firm for what was right and did it in such wise ways. I thank you for his example. And Lord, I thank you for his testimony of his faith. And it reminds us, and we know this, but many people, and especially then, they had a hard time with this, that our faith as Christian is consistent with the, the, the Old Testament Judaism. It all fits together. And we thank you so much for the all of Scripture is inspired by God and is, the, and, and is, and is, is profitable for us. And Lord, I do want to thank you that our Savior has been crucified, paid the price for our sins. But I thank you also that our Savior has been resurrected to confirm that our sins are forgiven, to confirm that we are completely righteous, to confirm that our Redeemer lives. He always lives to make intercession for us. Thank you so much for the hope of the resurrection that we have, even, all, even into eternity. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you don't have that hope. You don't have that hope. Yes, you'll be resurrected in the, on the last day, but you will not be resurrected with that hope. You'll be resurrected as one who has to pay for his own sins. I would invite you to put your faith in Christ, to receive him as your Savior and Lord. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful, and I know that I have not really put my faith in you. I have not trusted you for my salvation. I have not repent, been repented from my sins. But I say this now, that I believe Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I want to receive him as the one who paid for my sins, who provided for my righteousness that I so desperately need. And I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off. Those who are watching.